Let's begin reading in 2 Timothy chapter 2. I'll tell you what, just for fun, let's throw it back to chapter 1. Read verse 13 and 14, and then we'll begin in chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13. Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. And then in chapter 2, verse 1. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And also, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer must be the first to partake of the crops. Consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. Pray with me once again. Father, We thank you for your holy, inerrant, inspired word. Take it now, plant it deep in us, that it may take root and bear fruit. In Christ's name, amen. We've been studying over these last few weeks the Great Commission. And even though we've already read it once this morning, let me remind you what that commission is. Because we looked at some statistics the first Sunday we considered this topic and saw that many people, even church-going people, cannot tell you what the Great Commission is. Even if they have heard of it, they're not sure what it means. But Jesus, just before His ascension into heaven, told His disciples, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth... Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And then the promise, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We've talked about these aspects of the Great Commission. The one and primary command is that we ought to, that we should make disciples. That is the command. That is the one job. It is the duty of every church and every Christian to make disciples of all the nations. And we're considering these components of making disciples, the three participles that are used in that sentence, this command, Going, baptizing, and teaching. We are all called to go. Whether that means we go across the globe, across the country, or across your yard to your neighbor. We all have been called, without exception, to go. But the thing that sets Christian going, apart from everyone else's going, is the next component And it's described in this verse as baptism. 
Baptism includes gospel proclamation. As we go, we don't just go and do good deeds. We don't go just to uh, represent our church. We don't go just to make life easier for other people across our county and across the world. But we go for the purpose of proclaiming with our mouths the good news about Jesus. And as people hear the message of Jesus and they believe in him, they repent of their sins and put their trust in him. We baptize them. We bring them to that outward symbol of identifying with Jesus, that public proclamation that I have died to myself, that I am buried in what we look at as a watery grave and raised to new life in the Lord Jesus Christ. We go and we baptize But I believe this third aspect, this this teaching component of the Great Commission truly is the aspect that has been the most neglected. This is where discipleship really happens. Many people and really many of us up to this point, most likely have thought of this command to go into all the world and make disciples of the nations as going out and preaching the gospel. And that is true. We must preach the gospel. That has to happen first. But the commission is not fulfilled when we baptize a new believer. We have missions conferences and we call on people to go. We do evangelism training and we teach people how to share the gospel and then we baptize those who believe. But the Great Commission is not fulfilled when there are believers In every nation. But Jesus calls us to make disciples, learners, followers of all the nations. I've said it before and I don't even remember where I got it from, but I'll say it again. Baptism is not the finish line. It is the starting line. The mission of the church does not end whenever we baptize a new believer and say, "Okay, here's the Bible, read it and do what it says and. I hope you come to Sunday school. That's that's what we tend to do. But the Great Commission goes on in the work of teaching. I would say, and I don't have any statistics here in front of me to prove this, but I would say that many Christians, and I'm tempted to say most Christians, have not been truly discipled. Most Christians, I believe have not had an investment made in them by another Christian more mature than them to teach them what the Bible says and to help them mature to the point that they can disciple someone else. I wouldn't want to embarrass anyone, but I I would be tempted to take a poll even by a show of hands and ask how many of you can tell me that you had a Christian in your life who intentionally poured into you, taught you what the Bible said, showed you how to live it, and equipped you to do the same with someone else. I would be pleasantly surprised if two or three of you raised your hand. Most of us have good Christian role models we can look to and say, wow, they lived the Christian life. I learned so much by watching them. And I thank God for those. Many of us can point to a Sunday school teacher and say, you know, I came week after week and they taught me the Bible. And man, I have such a better understanding. And I say, thank God for those. 
But how many of us can truly say we have been discipled? And that is to be intentionally taught and have the Christian life modeled before us with the purpose in mind that we would be able to turn and do it for someone else. And I would say that very few of us have had that experience. So we have to ask the question when we consider this concept of teaching and discipling, is your faith, is the faith you claim, your faith in the Lord Jesus, is your faith worth passing on? Is what you say you believe about God and the Bible valuable enough that you should take the effort and even spend your life passing it on? To others and to another generation. The true answer to that question doesn't come from the words of your mouth, because most of us would say, of course, the gospel is worth passing on. Of course, my faith is worth passing on. We would all agree with that statement. But the real answer comes from looking at where your priorities are in life. Does your life demonstrate that the faith you possess is worth passing on to your children or your grandchildren or to younger Christians in your church or even unbelievers in your community? Is your faith worth passing on? Parents have a responsibility of passing the word of God and the gospel on to their children. We see that as early as Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And then what does he say? The law that's written on your heart, you pass it on to your children. Talk about it when you get up in the morning. Talk about it when you go to bed at night. Talk about it when you're on the road. Talk about it every opportunity that you get so that you can instill in them. The word of God that you have received. Parents have a responsibility to children. Grandparents have a responsibility to grandchildren. Sometimes children have a responsibility to parents and grandparents. Some of you may have parents or grandparents who aren't Christians or who are immature Christians. And you have to be very careful not to be a jerk or to put off like you know more than them. But you still have a responsibility if they are believers or even if they're unbelievers to make sure that they know the truth. Retirees have a responsibility to those who are at the height of their careers. You who have been around a while and who have learned a lot from the Word of God and have the life experiences need to find someone who hasn't been where you've been yet and start pouring into them now, teaching them what the Bible says and telling them of the experiences that God has brought you through. You who are middle-aged and maybe you're, you're really at a point where you feel like you're, you're going in life and things are kind of where you want them. You can look back and see someone who's just getting started, coming out of high school, coming out of college, getting started in a career. And you can come alongside them and say, hey, let me walk with you. Let's read the Bible together. Let's pray together. Let me help you grow. Students can help other students. You see, I told Kelby this this week, and we've had so much experience of death lately. You think about these things. We're all going to spend our lives doing something. You're going to spend your life on something. 
I want my, I want my life to be spent making disciples. Do you want to spend your life in obedience to God? Because if you don't, you'll just waste it on something else. I do make a special appeal to you as the congregation here at Simmons Grove. Many of you are in retirement now. Yes, your schedules are still busy. You still find things to do. Sometimes things are thrust upon you and you wish you could get out of it. But let's just be honest. You've never had a time in your life where you could make disciples more than you have right now. You parents, you have a responsibility, a duty to pass the faith on to your children. If you don't teach them God's word, someone else will teach them something else. That's not God's word. They will learn something from someone. God has given you an opportunity to pour into these people who will grow up to be adults who live in society. And if I may make an appeal to teenagers, young adults. You've got life ahead of you, you have ambitions, you have goals, you have dreams, you have things you want to do. But are you willing to set what you want on the back burner in order to fulfill the calling that God has put on your life as a Christian to make disciples of all the nations. Go ahead and tell your parents you want to go to seminary so you can be a missionary. You'll scare them to death. <laughs> They'll panic. You want to rebel against your parents? Go ahead and rebel by moving across the ocean to tell somebody about Jesus. You want to run away from home, run across the country to some group of people who don't have churches in their area and start reaching people and starting churches. Because you know what? You can have a successful career. You can have education. You can build this massive retirement account. Come to the end of your life. And you know what? I think I'm going to take it easy for the last 10, 15, 20 years that I have on earth. And it can all be a waste when you take your last breath here and stand before God. You're at a critical moment in your life and you can make decisions now that you're going to give yourself to making disciples for Jesus. Parents encourage that. Grandparents encourage that. Coming to our text now, Paul here's at the end of his life. We've been praying through 2 Timothy on Wednesday nights. And it's interesting that Paul is in prison about to lose his head, literally, for preaching the gospel. And when he gives his last instructions to Timothy, what kind of advice do you think he would give? Now, humanly speaking, if you do something and the result is you lose your head, the advice you give to someone else is don't do what I did that's causing me to lose my head. But not for Paul. Paul here is in prison at the end of his life, writing this letter to Timothy, most likely the last letter he ever wrote. And when he gives these instructions to Timothy, he says, Timothy, I've preached the gospel. I'm going to lose my life for preaching the gospel. Here's my advice to you. Preach the gospel. I mean, it's brilliant, really. 
But he calls him not just to take what he has received from Paul and proclaim it, but he says to pass it on in such a way that those who receive it can continue passing it on. He talked about that good deposit, that good thing that had been entrusted to him in verse 13 and 14. Verse 14, he said, that good thing which was committed to you. That's the gospel. That's the word of God. Keep it by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Guard that good deposit that was entrusted to you. Keep it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Share it. Grow that investment. And then when we come to chapter 2 and verse 2, here's how he says to do that. He says, the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now, do you see the four generations of the gospel there? First, it came to Paul. He said, the things that you've heard from me among many witnesses. Paul wasn't trying to sneak things under the table. He wasn't preaching one thing in public and teaching Timothy something else in private. He wasn't working on his own agenda. He was preaching the word of God. He said, here it is. I've got it. I've got the word of God. Now, what you have heard from me, Timothy's got it. That's the second generation. Entrust these, commit these things to faithful men, third generation, who will be able to teach others also. Four generations of the gospel. How many of you could tell me right now, just by raising your hand, that the gospel has made it through at least four generations of your family? Anybody? Your your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents? It doesn't happen all that often. Some of you can go back two, three generations. Some of you can think of your own parents who became believers and now you're a believer and your children are believers. That's three and you hope your grandchildren. Some of you may be first generation Christians, but here's Paul, a first generation Christian who has taken what he heard and passed it on to Timothy in such a way that Timothy could in turn pass it on to other men and he passed it on to them in such a way that they could turn and teach it to others also. We don't want to just make disciples. Listen, we don't want to just make disciples. We want to make disciples who can make disciples. When we come to preaching the gospel and teaching what Jesus has commanded, that last part of the Great Commission, and to teach them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Well, one of those things that he commanded was to make disciples. It's circular. Until those that we disciple are equipped to make disciples, we have not truly discipled them. Let's look at the passage now. He gives us in verse 1 our fuel for making disciples. What keeps us going? What's our motivation? What strengthens us as we go? He said in verse 1, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now, with all that's going on in our church the last few weeks, some of you just, that, that needs to be the whole sermon right there. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strong is, if you look at the word, it's, it's in the imperative mood, but it's passive in its voice. So it's imperative in the sense that, that it's a command. 
It's something that we're called to do. We have to take the action of choosing to trust in the grace of the Lord Jesus. We have to make the conscious decision that we are not going to trust in ourselves, but we're going to rest in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. It is imperative. You have to decide to do it. But it's passive. Because you can't strengthen yourself. Rather than saying, be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus, it might be better to say, to be strengthened in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You know, we can't walk up to the grace of God like a vending machine and say, okay, I'd like to strengthen myself today. What do I need to do? No, we decide to rest in the grace that is already there and let the Lord do the strengthening. We cannot strengthen ourselves. We are strengthened by God in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. It's all about the grace of God, that unmerited favor. We could never earn the goodness of God and we can never strengthen ourselves. Even after we are born again, our sanctification is dependent on the grace of God. Paul told the Ephesians, by grace, you have been saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now listen, that's not where it ends. He says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We come to God in salvation by grace. You have sinned against God. You are not on good terms with Him. You have offended Him. You deserve His punishment. You can't do anything to make it up to Him. But Jesus died for you. He took your punishment and He offers you forgiveness and salvation as a gift of grace. It's a free gift that can only be received. You cannot earn it. But when that gift is received, he didn't just save us and say, "Okay, go on your way. But he saved us for good works. And he has prepared works for all of us. And that works, the the carrying out of that work that he's called us to do is found by resting in his grace, the same grace that saved you. Remember, Paul had a thorn in the flesh. He asked God to remove that thorn three times. We don't know what the thorn was. But what did he say? He said, I asked him to remove it. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. So Paul concluded, therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities. Any of you boasting in your infirmities today? He says, I boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. It is the grace of God that you need. Whatever circumstance, whatever you're trying to do in your Christian life, you can't do anything apart from just resting in the work that God has already done and the work that he is doing in you now. Just depend on him. Since we have received the grace of God. We have a responsibility to teach and pass on what we ourselves have received. This work of disciple multiplication requires that we be strong in the grace of Jesus. And that's the only place our strength lies. 
And Paul gives us in these next few verses three analogies, three pictures to help us understand this calling that he's given us. Let's consider them briefly. Number one, you're, a, you're like a soldier. So don't get distracted. Verse three, he says, you therefore must endure hardship or share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. As soldiers, we must endure the hardship. We must share in the suffering that comes along with disciple making. You think about it. What does disciple making involve? People. I have a friend who's a pastor. He used to say, I love the ministry. It's the people I can't stand. (laughs) And anytime you try to minister to other people in whatever capacity, but especially in those disciple making relationships, there's a natural messiness that comes along with that. Relationships are messy, aren't they? Some people say, well, friendship shouldn't be hard work. Well, in some ways, that's true. But in other ways, if you're really going to be close with somebody, it's going to take some work. There are going to be some messes along the way. We who are married experience the full effect of that, right? Relationships are messy. And as you try to disciple someone and you're trying to help someone grow in maturity and in the knowledge of the word of God, you're going to be disappointed. You're going to have this group of people together and you think, yeah, we're going to study the Bible. Things are going to go great. This is this is just the the, the top of the line team right here. This is going to be some people that God can use. We're going to do great things for him. And then six months in, two of them are living in sin. One's quit the group and the other one has fallen off the map and you don't know where they are. It just happens sometimes. Relationships are messy, but as soldiers, we cannot get distracted. We cannot give up when things get difficult. We have a job to do. No matter what the outcome is. We endure hardships, not just of relationships, but the intolerance of the world. The world doesn't mind us gathering here on Sunday and and having our worship services. The world doesn't mind us preaching the Bible right here in this building. But the moment you step out into their territory and start opening your mouth and opening your Bibles and start telling people what God's word says. The battle begins. There will be a fight. And good soldiers stand strong in the fight. They said in verse four, no one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life. So that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. You know, I'll just be honest. Whenever I hear that we're going to sing onward Christian soldiers in a worship service. At first, it's always like, yeah, okay, that's a fine song. It's not the song you think of when you think of a worship service. You know, I'm going to have my hand in the air. I'm going to praise the Lord. You know, it's not the song that brings tears to people's eyes. It's just not what it is. But I'm glad we have it because we need to be reminded. Do you think of your Christian life in those terms? Onward, Christian soldiers marching as to war. Do you think of your life as war? You should. If you're a Christian. 
Christian life is war. We must remain untangled from this life's affairs. He said no one engaged in warfare entangles himself in the affairs of this life. That just makes sense. If you're in a foreign country and there are bullets flying around you, you don't stop to get caught up in a domestic squabble. You'll get killed. In the same way in the Christian life, in Christian warfare, as we go marching into this world, the church militant carrying the gospel, we cannot get entangled in the affairs of this world. Oh man, how every church in the United States needs to hear this. You know why? Because the God has become politics. Heaven help us if Christians get their way politically. It doesn't matter which party is in charge in Washington, D.C. When it comes to the mission of the church, listen to me. Who is in charge in this country is irrelevant to the work that we're called to do. It doesn't matter who's sitting in the White House if we are to be making disciples. What does that have to do with making disciples and preaching the gospel? Now, not getting entangled doesn't mean that we're uninvolved. You can be involved. You can vote. Go walk in a protest. Fine, I don't care. Share a gospel tract while you're there. Tell somebody about Jesus. Social media is the devil's working. I'm convinced. Go look me up. See how much I post. It's quite unimpressive. I don't want people to know what I think about politics. You know why? Because I don't want there to be any barrier between me and an unbeliever who needs to hear the gospel. I don't care what he's got to say. He voted for that guy. That should not hinder us from carrying the gospel to the world. Be involved, yes, but do not become entangled. That is not your priority. It's not just politics. It's all kinds of things. Careers, education, money, the works. Anything that is a hindrance to your gospel witness needs to be thrown aside. If you can't manage it, get rid of it. I'm off my soapbox now. Thank you. It just means that we need to keep these things in perspective of the gospel and our mission and eternity. Don't not not what matters over the next four years, but what will matter in eternity. We must single mindedly obey to please Christ who enlisted us. You know, we did have Veterans Day this week. We've talked about it a little this morning. You guys who went into the service, you didn't show up, get a uniform and say, all right, I'm going out to dinner. See y'all tomorrow. No, as soon as your name is on that list, as soon as that uniform is on your body, what you want to do and what you have planned doesn't matter anymore. You are under orders at all times. When called upon, you answer immediately. Your preferences don't matter. What you want doesn't matter. In the Christian life, 
Do we preach the gospel that way? Once you become a Christian, put on the Lord Jesus. What you want doesn't matter anymore. That's a gospel that'll sell, let me tell you. When you became a Christian, you were enlisted in the army of the Lord. You wear the Lord Jesus' righteousness. You're under orders. And what you want comes second to that. You're like a soldier, so don't get distracted. Number two, you're like an athlete, so follow the rules. He said in verse 5, And also, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Now, in the modern church, when you start talking about laws and rules, Christians get nervous. Like, no, it's all about love and grace and, and Jesus. And yes, it is all about love and grace and Jesus. But that does not mean there are no rules. Yes, Christ has fulfilled the law. We rest in him and we rest in his grace. But as we now follow him, we are to live in conformity to that standard he has set before us. We must exercise discipline to live a holy life. Paul told the Corinthians, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Not everyone who runs in a race gets the trophy, do they? Well, maybe they do now, but not in Paul's day. Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown. But we for an imperishable crown. Therefore, I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection. Lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. We are in this Christian life. It is as we are running a race, we must run according to the rules so that we are not disqualified. Not all who finish or begin strong, finish strong. It's not all about how you start in the race, but where you are at the finish. Friends, I don't want to disqualify myself. How many pastors and ministers and, and, and people who have run large Christian organizations who seem to have started well and things were great and the Lord was using them, but they did not follow the rules. They did not live in conformity to the life that God had called them. And they suffered for it. They were disqualified. Their ministries were a train wreck. Because they couldn't control where their eyes went or where their hands went or whose money went in their pockets. It's not just big ministry leaders that need to be worried about that. Friends, we all have a testimony. We're all in the race. Not everyone who begins the race finishes well. I want to finish well. You're like an athlete. So follow the rules. We work with our eyes on the reward in the end. And number three, you're like a farmer. So keep working. Verse 6, he says, the hardworking farmer must be first to partake of the crops. You know, this probably is my favorite analogy because there is 
no drama and minimal glory in being a farmer. (laughs) There are plenty of at least former farmers in the congregation this morning, right? Any glory in that? Do you look back on that and say, man, I wish I could go back to those days? Maybe, but not for the sake of the sweat and the toil. This comparison to the Christian life being that of a farmer, it speaks of faithful diligence. No farmer gets out of there and works for the pat on the back. When things are going well, when things are going poorly, when there's clouds in the sky, when there's rain, when the sun is shining, when the wind is blowing, no matter the conditions, there is work to be done and it must get done. Vacations are minimal, if there are any. Farmers are faithful and diligent to do the work that they do, regardless of the conditions, regardless of praise, just because it's the work that must be done. The work's monotonous. Same thing day after day. Sure, you have the surprise here and there, but year after year, planting, watering, reaping. And you must trust God for the outcome, right? I mean, you... Farmers just go out and plant the seed. They can't make anything grow. When you go out, even if you've got a garden now, you go and you put your seeds in the ground, you put some water on it, you put it in in, in good daylight, there's nothing else you can do at that point. You just go in the house, go to bed, and get up the next morning and hope something's coming. Trusting God for the outcome. That's how the Christian life is. Sometimes the work is monotonous. Sometimes you feel like you've gone over the same things over and over and over and over again and you're getting nowhere. There's not much glory in disciple making. Not everyone, you're not going to get many pats on the back in this life. You just have to trust God for the outcome. You can't change anyone's heart. You can't make someone mature as a Christian. But you do get to enjoy some of the fruits of the labor along the way, don't you? And we just do a small garden. It's really impressive. It's about four feet by 16 feet. Let me tell you, it's it's something. (laughs) Um, And last year we did uh, just those little little cherry tomatoes. And I'd send Joel out to pick them because he enjoyed doing that. Say, just get the red ones. And uh, he would come in with a few, but the vines would still be empty. And uh, the rest were in his stomach. And that's just, <laughs> that, that's all that happened. We, we got some. Um, and I really hate it for these folks that's got the blueberry place up the road. Um, we try our best to keep him honest and just putting them in the bucket until we can weigh at the end. But, I mean, we just have to kind of leave an extra dollar or two when we're done because we don't know how many he's eaten along the way. But when you farm, when you garden... You get to enjoy some of the fruits of your labor along the way. But you're not the only one that benefits, are you? All who partake in your crop reap the benefits of the work that you've done. Disciple making may not be glorious. It may not be as great as coming back as a soldier from war or as an athlete with a crown. But you do have the reward of the fruit. The growing may be slow. But if you keep casting the seed of God's word, you keep watering it, 
You stay faithful. You just put your head down and keep working. Don't worry about what people think. One day you'll stop and look and say, you know what? There's a little green right there. Or you'll look back in 20 years and see someone that you studied the Bible with and prayed with regularly. And you see how they've grown as a Christian and how they're discipling others now. Parenting especially, I'm sure. You raise your children. They live in your house for hopefully only 20 years or so. And then they move out and you see them have children. And when it was it John that said, you know, it, it brings me joy. I rejoice to know that my children are walking in the truth. What better reward could there be in this life than to see those you've invested in now investing in others? It'll be your greatest joy. Church, we have a job to do. It's intimidating. It's something we cannot do on our own. But with the help of the Holy Spirit, if we will just be faithful, just take steps in the right direction, the Lord will bless our efforts. And we will see fruit. We can't control when it comes. We can't control how much we get. But God has promised that His Word will not return empty. It will accomplish the purposes for which it was sent forth. If we keep casting the seed, keep watering where we've cast, share the Word and pray, the Lord will give fruit. And I hope that you'll join me in carrying out this task of making disciples. Would you stand and pray with me? God, we thank you for the beauty of your word. It's sufficiency. The power that it has to change people's hearts. May we be a church that's characterized by faithfulness to make disciples of all the nations. May we willingly go, boldly proclaim, and faithfully teach just as you've commanded us. In Jesus' name, amen.